Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 106, where in a moment, we're looking at pensions for the self-employed. That's in the way, as I say, in just a sec. But please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. And you can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programmes to date, we featured loads of stuff. Pensions, investing, wills and powers of attorney and loads more. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last week, we were in conversation with Charlotte Ransom of NetWealth. Remember, we can drill down and focus on pretty much anything forensically. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll get us there. Like I say, an enormous resource, all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And in that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis, and with me as always, Whenever Phil takes off to America to watch the Denver Broncos, it's Andrew Schooler. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. Uh, thanks for having me along today. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Okay. Pensions for the self-employed, Andrew. Not that I like to use Phil's show for my own means, but I do pay special attention when the topic is precisely suited to me. And this is one of those. I've been self-employed for almost 31 years. That's right, friends. I found fame as a child star at the tender age of only three and a half weeks old and have been working solidly ever since. Now, barring a short period, Right at the beginning of that, I've, I've had a pension, I'd say, for almost that entire length, but I've only ever paid the minimum sort of direct debit amount. At no point have I topped it up. Luckily, at least, they've employed an annual increase each year. But even now, all that happens is I get a statement every year, look at what it says in terms of a lump sum and think, well, that looks okay. Tick it off in my head as being something else done from the list and then stick the envelope in that drawer of stuff that we all have with a view to digging it out for my tax return later in the year only to never find it again. And if that sounds familiar to you, pop your hand up now so I don't feel like a total idiot on my own. The thing is, Andrew, I reckon that's a pretty bang average tale. I mean, most self-employed people, they treat pensions as something on their to-do list. And once it's done, they think, okay, next. And I get the feeling, at best, we get maybe a C of a pass mark for that and nothing more. And there will come a time, won't there, when you realise, actually, I don't think I've got enough of my pension pot to do all that stuff. Or worse, I don't think I've got enough simply to get by. And usually those thoughts come at the point where you don't have enough earning years left to rectify the situation by putting more in. That's certainly my big fear. So we'll try and deal with at least some of that in this episode. Let's start with this, though. Who's today's podcast aimed at? I mean, you could be self-employed as a sole trader or have your own company or companies. Does it apply to everyone in the self-employed bracket? Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to anybody who's self-employed, really the, the onus is going to be on yourself to have a pension. Nobody is unfortunately going to do it for you. So whether you're self-employed, whether you're a limited company, whether you're a partnership, whether you have a load of employees, basically the buck stops with yourself. Whereas if you're an employee, it's your employer's responsibility to provide you with a pension. That's the new auto-enrollment rules that came in in 2015. But if you're self-employed, it's something that you have to take ownership for. Okay, so that's presumably why it's so important. I mean, barring the fact that you might make millions at your your business, it's important to have a pension for the everyday guy that's self-employed, right? 100%. Like I say, with auto-enrollment, with pensions now, the onus is really on, on somebody having enough funds to maintain their standard of living in retirement. 
there hasn't been any legislation that states that the state pension is going to be changing. But my view is with all these emphasis on people providing their own pension, we may see changes to the state pension in the future. It may become a means tested type pension rather than a flat, you know, uh, just under £10,000 a year rate that we get at the moment. So there's lots of little steps that, in my view, seem to be putting us towards the situation where more and more it's really important to ensure you've got enough money behind you to ensure you're going to have a good retirement. Okay, so I mean, obviously the self-employed can't rely on the state for their retirement. I mean, is that what we get? Did you say ten thousand pounds? Is that what everyone gets? Because you you hear about the state pension all the time. Is it for everybody? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of key factors you need to bear in mind. The state pension. There, there's two things that can affect your state pension: the amount of national insurance contributions you've made at the moment, thirty-five years. So if you've got the minimum, or if if you've got 35 years worth of national insurance contributions, you'll get the full state pension. But, and this can be a situation for a lot of self-employed people as well, they could have contracted out of national insurance contributions. So basically, part of their national insurance contributions, rather than going towards a state pension, went into a second pot known as state second pension SERPs, lots of different names for, for this side of things. So If somebody has been doing that, then there's every chance that they'll have a slightly lower state pension, but then they'll have this other second pot of a pension, like a private pension. So it was really designed to give a little bit more flexibility or a little bit of options around how pensions were taken. But some people have come to rely on that as that's my pension and it's like well that's part of your state pension if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so they've got a smaller state pension but they've got this additional pot to one side so if anybody is unsure i would always get them to double check with the .gov website very simple to register just need some basic information national insurance number age date of birth etc and then you can get a, a full breakdown of your national insurance contributions and an illustration on what your state pension will be at the point in time of retirement. And I'll also tell you when your state pension ages as well, because that has moved quite significantly over the last few years. You know, um, initially from 60 to 65, and now we're in this transition period where we're transitioning from 65, 66 up to 68. And depending on your exact age, will depend on when you're going to get your state pension. So it isn't just a one size fits all anymore. So yeah, please everybody go and check your national insurance contributions to make sure that you are, you've are you made sufficient to, to get a full state pension. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the, the national insurance thing for a second. I remember, and I, <laughs> I'm letting you into my, my tax return at this moment in time, which is more than Donald Trump will ever do. But I remember at one point, getting uh, information from the tax people and it said, you know, this is what you paid in national insurance in this year, this year, this year, this year. And then there was an opportunity to top it up to pay the amount that you owe for this particular year. And I'm thinking, well, why is, I don't know why that's happened. No idea. But when you said 35 years of paying national insurance, is it 35 consecutive years? You know, if you get to like 34 and then suddenly you miss a year, is that is that going to count against you? Not at all. Not at all. There can be a number of reasons why there's been a missed year in contributions. That's kind of why, you know, we're 35 is the 
it's the kind of magic number because in theory, if you've been working since even age of 22, mm. you know, with university or whatever, you should have sufficient time to get enough years in. So it takes into account some, you know, you could have been working overseas. You could have not been working. Other thing to bear in mind, and, and I get this question quite a lot from women who've taken time off to bring up kids, you know, they're like, well, I, I've had 20 years out of the equation because I've been bringing up my kids. I haven't been earning. My answer to that is as long as you've been in receipts of child benefits, that counts towards your, your national insurance contributions. So even if they've had 20 years out bringing up kids, as long as they were in receipt of child benefit, they will then still get the full state pension. So that, that's that that's a question that I get a lot, and that that's changed in the past, which which is really really good. There's a bit of equality coming in there, which is great. Good to know. Going back to the pensions, mm. what sort of? I, I heard not so long ago. I think this was another program that the rough guide for what you pay in a pension should be something like was it a tenth of your of your salary, something like that. So, what sort of contributions should you be paying in? Yeah, absolutely. $64 million question, that one really. It's like, how much how, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is a very rough rule of thumb. And the, the auto-enrollment rules, and this is going back to employees rather than self-employed, but it's a good it's a good tack to take. Employees paying five percent, and normally the employer would match that. So that would be around 10% of the the salary. And um, so that's a really good starting point. I'm a firm believer, though, in you pay in what you can afford. Mm. So don't just work on 10% as being the, the that's the maximum that I should pay in. You pay in what's affordable. We'll come on to some of the benefits for self-employed people, sole traders, limited companies about making employers' contributions in certain circumstances. So there can be real tax benefits of doing that. But with a pension, you need to remember that when the money goes into the pension, you're not going to be getting that out until you retire. So the money is gone. So it's very, very important to ensure that what you're paying in is affordable. So that can be done on a regular basis. Like yourself, you pay in a direct debit. It goes up in line with inflation every year. That's great. Um, some people also tend to do lump sums at the end of the tax year. So They'll know what their profits for that tax year is going to be. They know what they've earned and say, okay, well, I've got extra within the company or within my accounts now. I'm going to put a lump sum. I'm going to put £2,000 in. I'm going to put £5,000 in. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That is an option as well. You can you don't just need to do it as a regular direct debit payment going in. Is there, is there a limit to it? I mean... Let's just say I had the, the the mother of all years financially. I, I I don't know what my my company would be, but let's just say I made uh, Paddington Bears, and you know all of a sudden there was a huge surge in their sales for whatever reason. Let's say that was the case, and I had made an absolute walloper of a year at my company. Surely there must be a limit to how much I can take away and say, right, well that was unexpected. I'm going to throw all of that into my pension pot. Yeah, there is. So the, there, there's two there's two things to bear in mind. There's two figures. One is your annual allowance and the other is lifetime allowance. So the annual allowance is the maximum that can be paid into a pension in any one year. Now, 
a lot of this is based on earned income, so your actual income as well as, so if you're a sole trader, it's all based on your actual income. If you're a limited company, there's a bit of flexibility between employer's contributions and personal contributions, but the maximum amount you can pay in, in any one tax year is £40,000. Now, there is another calculation that's done and this goes to show just how complex pensions are. So we've got £40,000 or your earned income, whichever is the lower amount. That's the maximum you can pay in, in any one tax year. But if you're earning more than £40,000, so let's say, for example, you have earned £100,000, for argument's sake, mm-hmm. in one uh, tax year, and that's earned income. So that's what you've paid tax on, not dividends income. Do you... If you haven't used your full allowance in the past three years, there's a rule called carry forward that you can carry the unused allowance forward into the current tax year. So if you've only used a small part of your pension contributions in the previous year, in theory, you could pull all that forward. You can say £100,000 is going to get paid into a pension in that tax year because you're using that carry forward rule. Now, you know, even just by me explaining that is probably sounding quite complicated. So that's where somebody like myself would then get involved and do the calculations for you to ensure you're not going above the taxable threshold because then there's tax charges involved if you do that. So you need to be very careful. There's another figure that we need to be mindful of as well, and that's called the lifetime allowance. So the lifetime allowance is the maximum you can have in pensions before any additional tax charges come into play. Fortunately, that figure is quite generous. That's £1,073,100. So you can have quite a sizable pension pot before any additional tax charges come into play. But again, it's another figure that we need to be mindful of when it comes to pension contributions. Just inside. Yeah, believe that, you believe anything. If you've been working in the financial industry for some time, you'll probably recognize the name that I'm about to come out with. But when I started my pension, I think it was with a company called Allied Dunbar. And I've never switched, but gradually over over the years, buyouts, mergers, takeovers have presumably happened. And what that means to me is I suddenly have a bank statement where just about everything I pay out in terms of pension and life insurance, all of it goes to Zurich. So I wonder. Who are the best providers for uh, for self-employed pensions and, and what funds should you be investing in, Andrew? Yeah, and you know, we'll we'll start off with the second part of that question first. And it comes back to the, the episode we did on diversification and uh, attitude to risk ah. and, and that side of things. R- really, there, there is no one size fits all when it comes to how things should be invested. Assessing your attitude to risk, looking at what your objectives are. Even the time scale that you've got until retirement are things that we should take into account when we're looking at how to invest funds. But the key to everything, diversification, spread and the risk is really, really important. So having a range of funds or portfolios that are covering as many different areas as possible is really, really important. That way you're going to minimize volatility and hopefully get a nice steady growth going forward. Now, with regards to providers, I wouldn't say there is one particularly better provider than other others. Myself as an independent financial advisor, we can use any providers that are out there, but we definitely have preferences. And those preferences come down to strength of the company, investment choices. Can we make employer contributions? Because that's really important for a self-employed person. 
you know, can they make employer contributions? Can they make personal contributions? How is it set up? So I wouldn't say that there's one specific company that I would go to all the time. I would assess it based on a client's requirements because, you know, it could be Advance as the best provider. It could be Royal London as a better provider for them in that circumstances, Standard Life, et cetera. So many, many different options for clients to look at. But that, that's my job at the end of the day. Mm. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, you talk about diversification and where the money should be placed. I've never had any say in that so far as I'm aware. I mean, I might have signed something to agree, but I don't believe that I ever had any say in in where the money is is going after it comes out of my bank account. So presumably that is what your pension company is, is looking at on your behalf. You would have thought so, but the, the pension providers go on instructions and then they stick with that instructions until they're told otherwise. Now, this is really where a financial advisor like myself comes into play and in ensuring that funds are being reviewed regularly and your needs are being met with regards to the portfolio or the way it's invested or the provider themselves. One thing to be very, very aware of, and we've we've seen this as been a major issue in the last eight months, um, some pensions are set up with what's referred to as a lifestyling strategy built in. So basically what that means is as somebody gets closer towards retirement, the attitude to risk or the the risk of the investments reduced down to something that's very, very cautious. Now, historically, that has been moving into things called bonds and gilts. So that's loans to large corporations and governments. What we've seen, though, since the start of the year, bonds and gilts have been the worst performing area Hmm. of anything at the moment. The UK gilt index is down 27% since the start of the year. So what we're seeing is people that are in this lifestyle and strategy, even though it's deemed to be low risk, it's the most volatile part of the um, industry at the moment. So it's really, really important to ensure that if you do have that in your pension funds, that it, it's it's still suitable for you going forward. Because it's a, I would say it's it's a relic of when everybody had to buy annuities when it comes to taking an income. That, that's a whole other conversation around <laughs> how you take income from a pension. But the view was you would buy an annuity, it gives you a guaranteed income for the rest of your life. Fewer and fewer people are going down that route. So the lifestyle and strategy is becoming less and less appropriate for, for, for people going forward. So very important to check that it's got that. If it has that in place, you need to ensure it's still appropriate. Now, Phil, somewhere in his person just now, there'll be a flashing light and an alarm going off, even though he's in a different part of the world altogether, because we've just issued a trigger word, annuity, and it'll just, you know, it'll send up like the bat beacon. <laughs> um, and he'll be saying, oh, someone needs me somewhere. And it's to recommend an episode. I do know that we've done... Uh, things like annuities in previous episodes. Unlike Phil, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, it was episode number 42 or whatever, but it is in our back catalogue. We have spoken about annuities before. Now, you were talking about the guilt index there. I've got a slightly different spelling of the word guilt for this, but I've certainly got an index going forward. A couple of things that, that crossed my mind there when you were speaking, and I suggested that perhaps the pension provider, the um, the company that's looking after it for you, would would look into what you're investing and sort of take care of that because, well, that's sort of what you would assume. You said not so much. So they're probably acting on an instruction, in my case, that I would have given them all that time ago when I set up a pension and it's not changed in 30 years, Andrew. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you are far from alone in that case. Many, many people are in that situation. They set up a pension. They are asked a series of questions potentially when they set up or they tick a box saying, how do you want it invested? And then it doesn't change until they're told otherwise. Now, you know, that could be okay or it could not be okay. It, it really depends on A, how it was set up and, and B, what's changed in your circumstances over the years. So, yeah, really important to ensure that these things are reviewed. The slight issue that we find with providers is they're unable to provide financial advice anymore. So they will act on your instructions or the instructions of a financial advisor. If you were to call up a provider and said, yeah, I'm looking for a new portfolio that maybe matches my attitude to risk, they'll just come back to you and say, we're unable to provide financial advice. Please speak to an advisor. And whether they've got their own advisors or whether they put you to unbiased that can then point you in the direction of an independent financial advisor, that's normally the route that they'll go down. So mm-hmm. they're, they're purely an administration process now, I would say. The other thing I'm thinking about with your attitude to risk, let's just say you, you get to, to my age, you get to almost 50 years old, and you think, right, I don't have that many earning years ahead of me. I better check how the pension goes. Find out that you know I'm falling way short of, of what I aspire for my, my pension to be. Would my attitude to risk, do you get a lot of people coming in with an attitude to risk where suddenly they're treating it like going for a night in the gambling tables and, you know, it's just a crapshoot. Let's let's put the money anywhere that could give me a high return. Does that happen in later life with a lot of clients? It, it can do. It's not necessarily the strategy that I'd advise. No. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of it does come down to the fact that, you know, we'll have a conversation with a client to say, what income do you want in retirement? That's normally how I start with saying, well, how close do you want your standard of living to be now? How close do you um, do you want your standard of living to be in retirement compared to it is now? And then that's what we work on. So we work on what income is required and then we work back from there. So say somebody says over and above my state pension, I want £20,000 a year income, for example. Mm-hmm. So I would probably say, well, in that case, you would want a pension pot of somewhere between 400 and £500,000 to comfortably give you that income for the rest of your life. We then look at where they are just now. We then look at what contributions are being made. So then we've got one of two options. Either you increase your contributions to get to that goal point, or you've got to then take more risk to get to that goal point. But the key word there is risk. You may get there, you may not get there, and may go completely in the wrong direction. So we need to have open and honest conversations with clients around that side of things to say, how realistic are your goals? And if you want to achieve those goals, what are you going to have to sacrifice to get there? So yeah, it, it, it can make for some really challenging conversations. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't just base it all on the 320 at Kempton, in other words. Uh, um, unfortunately not, no. <laughs> <laughs> the tax relief that you get on self-employed pensions. Now, this is something that I have got a vague idea of in so much as every time I come down to doing a tax return and I and I take what my, uh, my accountant lovingly calls farmer's accounts. In other words, I stick everything in a box or a bag and just say, there it is. Every every time I get round to that, I always have to look out a document from the pension provider that says this is what you are due in tax relief on any given particular year. So how does it work in self-employed pensions exactly? 
Okay, so th- this one we might need to buckle in for, get a cup of coffee ready and okay. uh, and, and um, sit in for the long haul. So I'm going to split this down into a couple of different areas, if that's okay. So I'm going to split this down for self-employed as limited company people and then for sole traders. So that, that's the two areas that I'm going to look at. So first of all, tax relief for, for limited companies. Now, you've really got two areas of tax relief that you can receive on uh, pension contributions for a limited company. Now, an employer can make contributions or the company can make contributions on your behalf. So it's a limited company. You can then make contributions to your pension from the company and you'll save corporation tax on, on those payments. So there's a saving there. If you're then making personal contributions, so basically contributions out of your wages, you'll then get income tax relief on that payment. So as standard, if you, for example, pay £100 into a pension, you'll automatically, you'll get tax relief on that money at, um, and it'll, it'll go up to £125. So that's the grossed up tax relief that, that you receive on that payment. And you know, it, it's a percentage, you know, it's a 20% uh, income tax crossed up. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, though, so if you're paying 41% tax in the UK and uh, in Scotland, 40% tax in the, the, the rest of the UK, then you can actually claim further tax relief on that contribution. Now, it's done through a self-assessment tax return. You put in your contribution and HMRC calculates what extra tax you're due. Now, in a lot of circumstances, if you're a higher rate taxpayer and you're making personal pension contributions, then you'll see your tax code changing. You'll have a slightly higher tax code to then uh, take into account the contributions that you're making uh, that way, unless there's other deductions that HMRC are making. And if anybody's ever looked at their tax code and worked, tried to work out how it's calculated, you know, you'll see it goes to pages and pages of information. But but yeah, basically, um, to cut a long story short, for a limited company, you've got corporation tax saving on contributions from the company, and you've got income tax relief depending on the amount that you earn on personal contributions. Now, so that, that's limited company. Sole trader, the income that you receive is classed as earned income. So there is no company income. So you can only make personal contributions. So there's no corporation tax relief from employer. It's only personal contributions that you're making. So again, if you're paying £100 in, that's automatically made up to £125 when it goes into the pension. So really good way to save in a tax-efficient manner. It's, a, it's another tool that we've got mm. to, to help increase money for retirement. When you're uh, looking at this or listening to this uh, <laughs> from the point of view of being self-employed, whether you're a sole trader or a limited company or whatever else it is you are, it's worth presumably reviewing any existing pensions that you have. And, and can you add to them? Yeah, and and you know, I think you know from the point that you made earlier on around you set up an instruction thirty years ago and they're still acting on that. That's as good a reason as any to be reviewing pensions to ensure it's doing what it's supposed to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> it's okay, everyone. Don't worry. It can't be as bad as John. There you go. That's that's uh, that's what we're we're operating as a policy for this show. What we have found is that a lot of clients could have a lot of small pensions dotted throughout their work career, you know, so, 
you know, somebody at retirement is not unheard of to have seven different pension pots because mm. it isn't just from changing employers. Employers sometimes change their pension providers as well. If you've had pensions before you were self-employed, that can all form part of the same same pension. So rather than having these little different pension pots all over the place, not really doing anything and unsure of how they're performing, they can be all amalgamated together into one pot so that you then have, this is my pension plan and I know exactly how much it is. I know how it's performing and yeah, it's managed properly going forward. So yeah, I, I would strongly recommend it to be reviewed regularly and by regularly, you know, annually is fine. You don't need to do it any more than that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just once every 30 years, John, that should be yeah, absolutely that, that, okay. that's fine. <laughs> the cost of living crisis has had an impact on everything, and COVID has had an impact on everything. Are you finding self-employed people are working longer as a result of that? A hundred percent. You know, I think everybody is um, scared over, you know, basically where the next paycheck's coming from, because um, things change, well, the last three years have taught us things can change very, very quickly. So I think what we're seeing is people are working longer hours. They're squirreling away more money than they did before, whether that's into pensions or savings plans, because they want to have that bit of financial security that if something happens going forward, they've then got money behind them to ensure that they can ride out whatever is the next crisis that comes our way. So, yeah, you know, whether that be through working more, having additional strings to their bow uh, and what they're doing work-wise, yeah, we're seeing it time and time again. What happens to your pension when you die, Andrew? Yeah, this is a really important thing to bear in mind. A lot of people think that when you die, you're just going to lose your pension. That's not the case at all. When we set up pensions for clients, they're set up in trust. So basically, in the event of your death, it's payable to anyone you wish. Now, there are rules around that side of things. This kind of came in post-2015. There were rules around who could benefit from a pension in the event of your death. And, you know, in the past, it was very much spouse or partner would be the only person. And then otherwise, it formed part of your will. And then it was potentially inheritance taxable. Now, with new drawdown rules coming in, you can name any beneficiary. So that could be spouse or partner. It could be kids. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It can be a charity now as well. And this is going to sound brutal, but bear with me. The beneficiaries, the taxation for the beneficiaries depends on when you die or how old you are when you die. So if you die before 75, they will receive the proceeds of that pension free from taxation. So there won't be any income tax liable in any withdrawals. If you die after 75, though, it's classed as an earned income from them. So anytime they take income out of the pension, it'll be classed as earned income for them and they'll pay the appropriate amount of tax. So, so yeah, thankfully, the pension does not die with you. And going forward, you know, covered it off in previous episodes, but these pensions can definitely go down the generations. They don't just die with you. They would then could go to kids. Kids could then use it. It could then go on to their kids. So if managed correctly, pensions can be a fantastic financial planning tool. Absolutely. You mentioned that your pension can go to literally anybody, whether it's a charity, whether it's your spouse, whether it's kids. Does there happen to be a restriction on how 
the pension goes to someone. By that, I mean, you know, so there's when my pension comes to fruition, I could take it as this much per month or I can take a lump sum or I can do, you know, there, there are various permutations of that. Presumably when a pension is left to somebody else, it's left at a set rate per month and not this massive lump sum that you could just say, oh, thanks very much, ka-ching. Yes, it can be. So it, it depends on what stage you are. You know, so if we're in the pre-retirement stage, as in you're accumulating money in a pension, when you die, if you die before you start taking any pension income, the whole pension pot would then pass to the beneficiaries. And that is, they then own that pension now. Like you would have owned that, you know, while you're accumulating in the event of your death, they get the whole lot or split between them. Sometimes it can be at the discretion of the trustees of the pension because there could be a reason why somebody should claim part of the pension. So it gets complicated. But if you've set up clear instructions, it makes it nice and straightforward for the, for the trustees to distribute funds. But in theory, if you had a pot of £200,000, you're still paying into it, you're no longer with us, then that whole £200,000 then would pass on to the beneficiaries. Now, how they then take that, they could use it as a pension, they could take it all out in one go. They could buy an annuity. They could do whatever they want. The same rules that you have on how you take your pension, they would have as well. Okay, got you. Any other areas of uh, financial planning that, that self-employed people should consider looking at? hundred percent. You know, and and this kind of elaborates a little bit more on the cost of living crisis question. People working longer and being concerned about where the next paycheck's coming from. So. We strongly advise that people ensure that part of their financial plans are having sufficient protection in place, life insurance, key man cover, business cover, so that if something happens to them, there's either a lump sum that comes in or there's a regular payment coming in, like an income protection type uh, policy. So these are all areas that we would strongly advise that people look at to ensure that if the worst were happened to them or they're unable to work through accident, sickness, injury, etc. They've got a plan in place that means they're going to have some income coming in that saves them having to erode their pension, their savings to, to meet their day-to-day living expenditure. It's funny you mentioned that. I've, I felt iller as this episode's actually gone on. Um, quite, a, quite a depressing topic, <laughs> isn't it? But we'll, we'll get there. Okay. If you could tie this up for me in a sort of neat little bow to take away. I, I know it's a massive subject and we're sort of scratching the surface, but you know, whether I'm self-employed, either I have, or I don't have a pension, what do I need to be doing to make sure that I'm set up for when I retire? Let's deal with someone who, who doesn't have an existing pension as a self-employed person, first of all, because that's probably the most concerning starting point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we hear quite a lot. uh, I can't afford a pension. You can't afford not to have a pension. That's, that's the key because that's going to be your standard of living in retirement. With pensions, the younger you can start, the better. So fantastic if you can start in your 20s paying into a pension because um, you don't need to contribute as much to hit the goal that you're looking for. The later you start in life, the harder it's going to be, the more you need to commit, the more you're going to need to give up to get to your, your financial goals. Okay, Phil's quote of the week in just a moment. If you have a pension and you're sort of heading towards pensionable age, I take it the, the thing that we recommend in that instance, Andrew, is that you, you 
review it and get it reviewed and, and sit down and actually answer the tough questions that might come up. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's kind of like the, the the life insurance conversation. Nobody likes to have conversations about life insurance because they never think they're going to die. But pe- pensions are, you know, when you start speaking about pensions, it's speaking about I'm retiring, I'm old, I don't feel old now, so I don't need to concern myself with that. But the sooner you can get started in retirement planning, the better. Um, you can even start retirement planning for your kids as well. You know, you can have a children's uh, pension. So from the age of zero, um, you can be paying into a pension for your for your child as well. And that that that's something that we're we're having conversations with clients about as well. More and more. Uh, yeah, you know, it, part part of this is around parents and grandparents being concerned around what retirement is going to look like for their family. So doing something like that, I'll, I'll, I'll give a scenario. I wrote an essay for one of my qualifications. Is, it was on how to make your grandchild a pension millionaire. And basically, the long and short of it was, if you paid in around £270 a month into a pension for your grandchild for 18 years, for the first 18 years, and with an assumed growth rate of just above 5% a year, when they're at retirement age, that pension pot will be around a million pounds. Wow. It's amazing. Unfortunately, retirement age for them by that point, obviously, will be 142. But, but <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, but but it's at a least thought. have that behind them. That, that's <laughs> Phil's quote of the week. This is part of the show where Phil delights us with a quote on the relevant subject topic for the show. I wonder if Andrew's come up with one on today's topic, which is, of course, pensions for the self employed. Yes. I've got a quote. Retirement is when you stop living at work and start working at living. Oh, very good. Do we have that? Is that attributable to anybody? Uh, no. <laughs> no, good. Oh, well. No, I, I, don't, I don't know who wrote that, but... We like it all the same. Now, Phil is very keen on trying to help you with your queries, and in his absence, we've got Andrew in the caseload, so if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if you wish. Let's get on to this week's contact details in just a moment. I'll give it to you after these. Hi, Andrew. My elderly parents worried themselves sick over their energy prices and kept being contacted by their energy provider to increase their direct debit payment amounts or risk going heavily into debt on their account. I feel it was almost a set of bullying tactics, as you can clearly see from their contacts, because they became increasingly more desperate in the run-up to Liz Trust taking over as Prime Minister. By that time, though, it was too late, and my parents had been persuaded an increase of around 75% of their monthly direct debit was about the best offer they were going to get and put the amount up. Uh, I know Liz Trust has taken action on the energy sector prices. Will that go so far as rescinding any deals made, such as this one, or will my parents be able to go back and reduce their direct debit amount in subsequent months? Wow, that's a, a bit of a blockbuster to start. What do you think? Yeah, it is indeed. So th- there's there's two ways to look on this. One could have been providers are just looking for you to increase your direct debit because of an increase of costs or increase of usage. I would say the bit that I'm concerned most about that question is, has the energy provider put you on to or put them on to a fixed deal that was at a far higher rate than the energy cap is 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 going to dictate. I personally had exactly the same situation. I was getting messages from my gas provider saying, go on to a new fixed deal. Um, 
but it was going to be about three times the cost of what I was actually paying at the moment. And, you know, being the financial person I am, I was looking at the cost thinking, okay, what do I think is going to happen over the next two years? Do I take the risk of staying on a variable rate or do I go into this fixed rate that I'm fixing myself in for three times the cost for two years? I stayed on the variable rate, but in this case, they may have gone into another fixed rate. So if that is the case, I would strongly advise going back to the provider and saying, look, how does this new energy cap affect where I am just now? Am I paying way above the energy cap just now? They should be able to make an amendment to that, but it's still a little bit all up in the air. I I don't think there's been any real legislation on exactly how people are going to be affected by that, but it is a massive concern for a lot Mm. of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's the thing. I, I don't know about how, how you work your, your phone in the, in the morning, but every every morning I get up, I sort of look at the bank and I, and I now look at my energy provider to see what today's offer is. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of got to that point where it plays a, a major part in your thinking and a major part in your day. And at one stage, I actually got an offer where it was going to be, let's just say for sake of argument, my energy direct debit right now is 200 pounds. And they offered me something like three hundred pounds a month going forward. And I could lock it in. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's that's fifty percent increase. That's only fifty percent. That's actually quite, you know. And I've come round to the point of thinking where that's quite good because yeah. of everything that we heard, it could be. And you can see how some, you know, skittles might fall. How some people might actually go and jump in. And that looks like what's happened to uh, to these people in 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 that instance. The other thing that I was told more recently by my energy provider, no names mentioned was that you know it looked like in the coming months i wouldn't be paying it enough and they would increase my direct debit for me which which i find a little bit invasive but you know yeah. i suppose i suppose it's within their remit to do that and it just seems slightly wrong that they're just cashing in while they can that's how it seems in a way it, it does you're absolutely right and i think there's there's a lot of backlash at the moment especially when you see some of the profits that some of the parent companies are Correct. making what I would always say, and, and what I've done as well, is I have a smart meter for both gas and electricity. I'm then able to really keep track of exactly what is using energy. And then I'm just trying to be as sensible as possible. Now, for example, I've got timer switches on certain, you know, for example, in the living room, the skybox and the TV sat on standby uses electricity. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point in time in the night, that all that switches off. And I know that while we're in bed, we're not going to be using electricity. So it's little things like that to just keep an eye on what's going on. But yeah, shopping around for deals, like so you switch, et cetera, you know, see who's going to get the best deals for you. So if you're not in a fixed rate at the moment, you know, you, you may be better off being in a fixed rate, but, you know, ha- have a look at the costs, have a look at the penalties to come out. It, it's, it's a very complicated market at the moment. Yeah, I, I think as well, I mean, you're talking about switching things off. And I, I think if you could if we could just put the kids up the chimneys again, then that would <laughs> <laughs> that would help out a lot. But apparently it's illegal, so they tell me. Next up, here's one from Alan and Bankery. Alan asks, is there anything in my basic will provision which won't be passed on to my wife or kids in the event of my death? I wonder if I have to make special arrangement for some item in particular which isn't 
immediately obvious. This is almost what we were talking about a moment or two ago when we were talking about pensions. Yeah, absolutely. So with the will, basically you want the will to be as clear and concise as possible because it's your instructions after you die. And and you can't then come back to explain what you meant by a certain thing. So the standard will would state, in the event of my death, everything goes to my wife or husband. In the event of both of our deaths, everything then passes to the kids or whoever else at that point in time. Mm. If there is something very specific, so for example, there's an heirloom that you want to stay in a certain line of the family, like you've inherited a watch from your granddad and you want it to pass on to your brother or their son or daughter in, in the event of your death. If you make it very, very clear in your will that this item is to go to that person under these circumstances, then it makes the executors of the will's job very, very easy because they can say, right, that's that specific requirement and that's being actioned. If it's not in the will, it will then get distributed accordingly between the beneficiaries of the will. So be as specific as possible. Okay. I'm Joe Mellis. Thank you for joining us for episode 106 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And thanks also to our guest presenter, Andrew Schooler. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn too, or when I email Phil a question he can answer on a future show. His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question, and like I say, Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast. And please be assured, we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us, and please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time, and thanks for listening.